so far, this is where we've been. The first week, we talked about the power of the Holy Spirit. Basically, we looked at Acts 3, 4, and 5. Look at the story of Peter, because we're trying to understand that week, what is the power of the Holy Spirit? What does it look like in action? How do we see it in Acts? I've been thinking, like, what did we take away? And I don't mean, like, what was the main point, but what surprised me a little bit? What surprised me as we interacted together? And here was the takeaway for me. The takeaway was the power of the Spirit makes a significant difference in our ministry effort and the fruit of those efforts. I, you know, that should be obvious. But we tried to show through the example of Peter how different that power is in our lives. And it was the highlight for us to say, I want that power. We want that in our lives. We want that in our ministry efforts, but we want that in every part of our life. That's been kind of the theme. That was week one. Week two, we actually asked the question, who is the Holy Spirit? So we can get over our pensions for calling the Holy Spirit it, or thinking of the Holy Spirit as a force. We asked, who is the Holy Spirit? And very importantly, the roles of the Holy Spirit, where I probably doused you with more scripture than you'd read in a while, as we went through many of the passages to describe the role of the Holy Spirit. What was the takeaway from that night? The takeaway was, wow, we know so little about the third person of God, who has so many important roles in the life of the believer, it seems like for all of the important roles that we saw, some of them really key to our life, it seemed like we have a very small understanding that needs to grow. That was kind of the takeaway that I think we all kind of felt that night. Last week, we asked the question, what would my life look like if there was the power of the Holy Spirit in my life? And here were the takeaways we came out with. We rely mostly on our own strength. That seems to be the theme of this series. In fact, you'll see that from those little uh, things that I gave you for your car keys, which I'll talk about in a second. We also said that we tend to live most of our life and experience most of our discipleship without seeking the Holy Spirit's power. I think we all acknowledge that in the few weeks that we've been together. What came out of it that was a little more surprising, I think, was this. We find that non-believers seem to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit sometimes more than it's evident in our own lives. That was something that came out of last week, and we kept asking, why? Why is that? That's a very important question. Because it either means that Christians, the way they exhibit fruit is really almost not non-existent, but so low that anybody could exhibit that same level of fruit. That it's just the Spirit's power in our lives is so diminished, we've allowed that to happen, that we're amazed at other people and what they can produce. That's why I said the last point is we seem to have so little connection with the Spirit that we often accept a faith without any of the supernatural in it. Like we're comfortable thinking our faith, believing our faith, and not finding anything in it that would be strange or supernatural. You know, the real central question that we answered last week was this one. The question we were asking was, are we capable of anything without the Spirit? We said, sure we are. We're capable of human-sized efforts. Ones that rely entirely on our own talents and abilities. That's what we can do on our own. And the quote that seemed to resonate with you the most last week, because I had like five conversations about it afterwards, was this one from Francis Chan, whose basic kind of, you could call it a confession, but kind of the theme of his book sounds, comes down to this. He says, I don't want my life to be explainable without the Holy Spirit. I want people to look at my life and know that I couldn't be doing this on my own power. I want to live in such a way that I'm desperate for him to come through, that if he doesn't come through, I'm screwed. How many of us go out enough on a limb or expect that our life of faith, our Christian life, is going to be something that needs God so desperately that it could not work without him? Or are we able to just keep motoring? So that's why we gave out these last week, just because it's been the theme of our series, the whole picture. If you didn't get one, there's a couple in the back on the table. It's meant to go on your car keys to kind of remind you of a couple of questions that I gave out. And we've kind of contrasted, you know, pushing the car on your own power versus actually driving the car the way it was meant to with the way that we kind of live life on our own power without ever engaging the spirit versus engaging the spirit who's supposed to be doing the powering of our life. The two questions I put up last week were, what could I not have accomplished today without the power of the Spirit? 
And, and for me, I told you last week, I confess, most days, nothing. In fact, maybe if I think back for months, nothing. And that should tell me something about the condition of my life. If every single day I can do every single thing I do without ever engaging the power of the Spirit, it means I'm accomplishing human-sized efforts, or I don't think the Spirit has any power that I want. I'm okay just doing my own thing. I don't really want God's power badly enough to seek it or to even risk something so great that I could not do it without God coming through for me. The flip side of it asks, what did I accomplish today without the power of the Holy Spirit? That list is usually longer. As I think about all the things that I go through the day thinking, I did, I did everything. I could do it all on my own. Maybe that's why my life, for the most part, can be characterized by a lot of human-sized efforts. Okay, that's kind of where we've been. So next week, we're going to answer the question, how can I be filled with the Spirit? Uh, how do I interact with the Spirit? Like, that's the actual tell me how it works, because a lot of you ask questions there. And finally, reluctantly, we're going to cover the one on the 21st. Is a second baptism of the Holy Spirit necessary? Only because I got so many questions about that. Now, let me show you. These are the questions we've already covered. These are the questions we will be covering. How we're going to do that in two weeks is amazing. But believe me, I think I'll fight away. Here's the questions for tonight. These are your questions. So here are what you asked that you seem to care about. If I don't see the power of the Spirit evident in my life, does that mean that the Spirit no longer lives in me? Can the Holy Spirit be earned? Can you lose the Holy Spirit? Can someone deny the Holy Spirit? What responsibility do we have for losing touch with the Holy Spirit? To what degree does one have an influence on the experience of drawing on the Spirit? And does doubt interfere with the Holy Spirit's work? I'm going to take the first one because it seems like the most interesting one to me right now. Last week after we had this conversation, this very honest conversation, where people were saying, yes, if you look, it seems that we're doing most things on our own power. There is exceptions. I don't want to generalize across everybody, but it seems for the most part we're often amazed at the smallest thing that we think is spirit-led. And I think I would diagnose that as saying that's because we're so out of touch with what the power of the spirit could be that the smallest thing dazzles us. So afterwards, Jordan came up to me and asked this very question. He said, if I don't see the power of the Spirit evident in my life, does that mean that the Spirit no longer resides in me? And it was such an honest question. Because I think we wonder that. If it's really true, all the things that we said last week, that the power of us, most Christians live entirely, most of the time, without the Spirit's power, has the Spirit left? That's kind of big. I want to at least point out that I don't think that's the case, and then I want to answer that question more directly. There are two scriptures, actually there's a third one that we studied in, the, in John 14, that I think would answer that right away. In Romans 8, verse 9, it says, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they don't belong to Christ. So I think the answer is, no, the spirit has not left us. The spirit doesn't leave us that easily. In fact, this says the spirit doesn't leave at all. If you're confused by the word spirit of Christ, we listed all the names of the Holy Spirit couple of weeks ago and showed that's one of the names of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. If anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, they don't belong to Christ. So unless you're saying, I've checked out totally, I'd say, no, the Holy Spirit hasn't gone anywhere. Second, Ephesians 1.13 reminds us, when you believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit. When you believed in Christ, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. And you're going to see that same language tonight in some other verses. So no, I don't think that that is the case at all, that somehow the Spirit is gone. Okay, so if we see these two things, I want you to answer this. A relatively low level of power of the Spirit in many of our lives, admittedly, but the Spirit is still there. How do you resolve those? Hmm, yes. We're ignoring him. We're ignoring him, okay. Anyone else? Soren. I think I have just... Some problems with, I guess even the quotes of, like, if you have the Holy Spirit in your life, like, it should be undeniable and everyone should be able to see it. And because I think of even Jesus, there are a lot of people that in his life still found ways to kind 
kind of not recognize the things that you did or just explain it away and see them as an ordinary man. So I think even, at least that's how I reconcile it, of, that I don't think it needs to be this life that looks so incredibly different, that's unmistakably different. Because um, I mean, I think even Jesus' life, to the people who didn't want to believe, they would say that his life wasn't unmistakably different. Okay. Yes. I don't think that you have to necessarily always feel the spirit moving within you to know that it's there. Um, I mean, there have been days in my life where I felt so far, so separated from God, but I know that that's not true. I know that maybe I was just going through something really emotional, really hard, whatever. doesn't mean that he's left me. It's still there. It just means that I'm not ready to be a part of it, you know, so I'm not allowing it to be present, really, or show in my life. I think that we have a lot more control over that than we'd like to believe, um, because then it would mean that we were responsible for um, our involvement with God and um, and how the Spirit moves in our lives, because, you know, it's the Holy Spirit. It would mean that you'd have to live a holy life. Okay. Anyone else? Uh, the part that I liked about what Jolene said is I think in my life there are many times where I know kind of what I should do mm -hmm. um, but it's so otherly that I really think that it's the Holy Spirit that's <clears throat> saying hey here's the way that um, you should respond but it's your choice and if I were to respond on that I think that would be evidence of the Holy Spirit really um, having its power in me, enabling me. And, I'm, and I would be partnering <clears throat> with it to do something that's so otherly. With him. Him. Okay, let me throw something out here to see if you guys are awake. I'm going to challenge Soren's comment from earlier. And you tell me how much you hate me for saying this. I believe that we have accepted such a sorry excuse for what it means to be empowered by the Holy Spirit that we could actually say that we shouldn't always exhibit some such remarkable difference being indwelled by God himself, that we've accepted some sorry understanding of what it means to have God inside of us, that we could invent a faith where we go about and nothing really big happens, and we say that by itself is okay, and that God's power doesn't show up very often. It doesn't show up here and there. It shouldn't be seen very much. It should be muted. He doesn't coerce people. There isn't all this stuff going on. In other words, it looks just like this. This is what it looks like. This is what God looks like in all of us. And we end up apologizing for God. Instead of praying for like outright healings, we pray for guidance of the doctor's hand. Instead of praying for like miraculous things, which miraculous things aren't the end all be all, but we actually try to hold it back. Instead of expecting to hear from God some amazing thing that would guide the church collectively, we kind of hope that all of our collective brains are smart enough to just kind of come together and get there. Because we don't know any better and we can't see any better and we're frustrated because we don't see any difference, we end up just buying that and apologizing for God. Well, you know, he doesn't do those things anymore. Or I wouldn't expect to see that every single day, whatever that is. Maybe just as simply as this, that we could accept that God living in us, we would look the same as if he didn't. And maybe that's harsh to say the same, because I don't know what the same exactly is before you met Christ. But you would think that you would look at somebody and think, <laughs> God is living in them. Do you disagree? Hate me for it. Yes. I don't disagree at all. In fact, I kind of want to disagree with Soren and say that I don't believe that Jesus' life wasn't extraordinary to the point where people didn't see that there was something different about him. It's in all through scripture that, he, that people did see something different. He, if they didn't see something so different, then they wouldn't have wanted to kill him. You know, there was, it's, it's evident throughout his life that he was different than your average man, you know? If I, I can push back to that. Because maybe different is the wrong words, but... More normal. But even the... Because I'm thinking of the quote that said, like, the only, the only way to explain it is the Holy Spirit residing in your life. 
passing of when it came to Jesus, you could say he was different, but people weren't pushed to have conversion necessarily. How do you know that? Where does it say that? Because I feel like it says throughout the scripture that it was. Well, I feel like there were the people that didn't believe in him. Well, the people that didn't believe in him thought that he was crazy because he was so different. It scared them. Well, that's why I'm saying different was the wrong word. But my point is that him being as different as he was was not proof to everyone that, you know, he was of God or had these things. And I don't know that, that ever in scripture... It says that our difference needs to just be proof, although it is cited as the thing that will let people know. For example, Jesus says that I am who I say I am, or that we are. There's a lot of things that our difference will demonstrate, like the light that we're supposed to be is supposed to shine in darkness, do lots of things, not just prove that God is God, although that's one of the functions. But I don't see anywhere in Scripture where it says that you're supposed to be the same. It does say you're supposed to be salt, light, markedly different. You could say all the words we use. But even just logically, it would seem that God living in us has got to be different. And if it isn't, then you got to doubt what, what, what God living in us is all about. John? Yeah, no, I just, I love the one scripture where they get the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and they're out preaching and, and the people say, aren't these like, the uneducated men, you know, the fishermen, all that, and I feel like that's exactly what it is right here, you know, it's such a transformation, all of a sudden they're moving in authority and power, and Peter, you know, has these thousands of people, like, listening to every single word, where in one day, he, you know, and, and these are people that have no standings in society, they knew, you know, is standing, you know, and I think, like, when they go to the temple and want to ask him for money, you know, he's expecting the physical money, like, you know, maybe that's what, you know, a nice person would do. They know what they have, you know, and, and the guy doesn't even think, oh, you know, I could get healed. He, they pray for him, and he's healed, you know, and all of a sudden, I feel like everything about their life is completely different. People can see it in their demeanor, and people can see it by what they're capable of, and they know what they're carrying, you know. I feel like, yeah, we know we have God, but, like, you know, when do we exhibit it? Exhibit it? We don't actually know, it's like... So what's different about us then? So why, if you know those stories, and you know the book of Acts, and you're citing the, what we did the first week, 3, 4, and 5, and all the power that Peter exhibited, right? Speaking in different languages simultaneously, thousands coming to Christ, standing in trial where Jesus had stood, you know, where he was fearful before, now suddenly speaking boldly, beaten for Christ and rejoicing. So if you know all that, what about us today makes us think those are then and somehow today, we're okay just being the way we are. What's the difference? I think it's just uh, being comfortable and being and having a desperation for it. Like, the disciples didn't really move it until Jesus went away. And then I feel like they set forward in the anointing because there was just a need for that. You know, like they, they were just, it was drawn out of them. And here, we don't need that in order to function because it's so accessible. And so why do you want to stick your neck out where you don't even know what it looks like? Because not many people have done it before, and you're thinking, well, I can get by here. Like, I don't know. I, I think it's purely up to you. If, if you want that and seek it, and you're willing to do anything for it, it's going to come about. You know, even over a month, you know, some just one way to the next. But, like, you know, Paul pursuing it numerous years after his revelation, you know, this guy wasn't even with Jesus, and look how tri like transformed his life was because he wanted it, and he would, like, give anything for it. Okay. Jill? Well, I feel like we set the bar so low for the Spirit's involvement in our life as an antidote for being disappointed when something doesn't happen. And so that we don't look stupid if we claim, oh, we heal you, and it doesn't happen. So that we don't have to make excuses for God. So that way our expectation's low, right? Yeah, I think that's a, that is definitely true. I'm going to come back to that, Peter. Yeah, I mean, I think this isn't the, the whole answer. I don't think anyone could argue this, but I think that a big part of it is that we're not being persecuted the same way. Like we're not under, you know, local Jewish law being hunted out as this room sect or like, you know, tortured as enemies of the empire. You know, I get we're you could argue that we're kind of closer to empire, you know, as like a you know large chunk of the faith. You know, so like I think it by virtue of just people like it being kind of a, a lower bar to even become a Christian, you know, like you're not defying convention, you're not meeting in secret, you're not, you know, like becoming this about enemy of the state by doing so, well, in this country. Um, I think it's, I think that that's a big reason why, and I think too, um, and I don't know if this is, uh, I think the, the reason why, kind of to relate to what Jill said, I think 
we, I don't know if it's we don't like to have cognitive dissonance, if that's like our rationalist mindset these days, you know, or we want to have an explanation for something, whether that's us kind of morphing our theology to fit what we're seeing or what, but I think to kind of accompany that lack of fire as a result that comes out of that, or, you know, the kind of, the, how that average Christian's, you know, pie chart of what percent of their life is dedicated to God, you know, like in the old days it was like 90 because maybe you had like a bunch of other Christians living in your house or whatever because, you know, they were on the run or whatever. Um, nowadays it's like, well, I go to church once a week, you know, and it's just, it's by no means as all-encompassing. So, I mean, you know, your average person isn't really going to, I don't know, burn with the same, you know, and, and that's not necessarily something that's right that it's that way. You know, I just, I think if I was going to diagnose it without, you know, an eye towards a, a cure, I'd, I'd maybe lean towards that. Okay, two last comments, Soren and then Jolene. Soren? I think just on the idea of being different and all that, I think of, I would say the amazing people I know versus just the average people that I know. I feel like it's often, it often is a more subtle difference, and sometimes it's not something that hits you immediately when you first meet them, but there's, there's just certain ways about their, their generosity or their patience, and it is more of a, a subtle thing that kind of hits you, which is why I think this idea of like the Holy Spirit should be this boom, like undeniable thing, maybe it's a more subtle thing. And maybe that's just me being, having too little of an expectation. Um, and then I think also, I have the sense that you can't, like you can't escape just everyday life and just the mundaneness. I know before I went to, to Kenya for a summer, I always had this idea that you know, missionaries were these kind of superhero Christians. And it was gonna be like this, like all the time, like all this intense stuff nonstop. And and there's a lot of just sitting around. And there's a lot of just kind of everyday life and cooking food and shooting the breeze and driving places. And I don't know, I think I think God works in the mundane and I think the mundane is such a part of life and I don't think I don't know. To me it is maybe putting too much expectation to have it, this, this crazy excitement, everything's fireworks, excitement going on. Before I let Jolene jump in, I want to be clear that I'm not saying that everything about the Christian life should be fireworks. I am saying it should be evident. It may be subtly evident. It may be evident only when you get to know somebody, but if God in us can't be perceived, okay. there's something wrong. Okay, that's the distinction I wanted to make, is that it can be subtle. Right. And that's okay, and I don't want to be heard as saying everything has got to be fireworks and speaking in five languages simultaneously. Although that will happen. But if you can't perceive it even after being with somebody for years, there's something going on. Jolene, last comment. My answer, the only thing that popped in my head was laziness, comfortability. We're comfortable with where we're at. We don't need, we don't have this, this need to... to um, to be on fire or whatever, you know, we're just, we're comfortable. Okay, let me go back to Jill's comment about our expectations, which a number of you have said, and Peter used the word theology. I will tell you that as I reflected on this topic this week, I caught myself recognizing that a lot of the times when I want to adjust someone's theology to make sure they've got it right, whether it's about how they hear from God or whether what kind of healing they should expect in their life. And I always find myself doing this like, well, you really got to understand what that verse was saying because if you don't understand it right, you can end up being what? Disappointed. And I find myself, because of my low expectations, trying to figure out a way to correct everything so that there's no way they can get disappointed. Where I see people who say, I just want to sit in front of the Lord and wait till I hear from him. And I don't care, I'm just going to do that. And I try to talk them out of it. Because I'm afraid they're going to sit there so long that they eventually walk out on faith entirely. Or that if they pray for that healing and it doesn't happen, that they're going to lose their faith. And so I recognize that my own low expectations are trying to hinder other people from having higher expectations that might get disappointed. And that feeling of disappointment, even though it's real, is wrong. We're apologizing for God and trying to make it so that he can always jump the lowest high bar. Because then he'll be okay and we won't have to be embarrassed by him. Soren. I mean, in some ways, I think you doing that is 
It's hard for me to see that as a totally bad thing. And isn't that a lot of what Exodus is founded on? Is that idea of these people that were disappointed in God, disappointed in church, that fell away because there were these questions that weren't answered and we're looking at those questions. I totally agree with you that that's the positive side of that coin and that's why we do what we do. It's just that this week I started to see that there might be that other flip side, that underbelly of it, where there's part of the motivation is always to make sure that God can meet the expectation. So if you can explain them enough, somehow it's wonderful. You guys know that Walt Whitman poem, When I Heard the Learned Astronomer? You ever heard that poem? Maybe not. Here's the paraphrase. When I heard the learned astronomer with all his charts and graphs and explanations and diagrams, I ran outside and I stared in silence at the sky and the stars above. There are times when we can do that, try to like explain God with rulers and measurements and compasses and all these high fancy things when really what we should do is stare at the stars and wonder and go, that's amazing. And that's what he was trying to express. Sometimes I think our faith should be a little more like that and a little bit less than what we do. Although, Soren, I totally agree with you. I wouldn't do what we do if I didn't think that being deep and understanding in your faith is going to actually not only root you deeper, but also get you through the struggles that come when we buy shallow formulations of our faith. Totally agree. Okay, I'm going to put this together this way for you and then read you some scripture. A number of people have said, because the Spirit resides in you and does not leave, but it's evident to most of us that very little difference is made by most of us on most days, I'm not saying all the time, that it must be that somehow we're not accessing the Spirit. The guy pushing the car that has a perfectly good engine is the best analogy that I could think of of saying, you're just not engaging the Spirit. The Spirit's there. The Spirit's in the car. The Spirit's the engine. You just decide you're going to push on your own, even though there's a perfectly good engine in there. It means that you got out of the car and decided to push just voluntarily. Some people would state it this way. This was one of the questions that you asked on your cards. What does it mean to grieve or quench the Holy Spirit? Anyone heard that term before? You should have heard the term grieve the Holy Spirit because we spent like 16 weeks studying the book of Ephesians and that comes from Ephesians 4 verse 30. But some people would just say, oh, you're quenching the Spirit. Now, of course, the great thing about things like that is people use it for all sorts of things. You know, like you just might say something, oh, you're grieving the Spirit. Like, well, you know, it was in a letter that did have some context, so there I go with the theology again. Let's make sure we get that right, you know. Or quenching the Spirit does come in a letter that Paul wrote, and we should probably understand it. So I'm going to read that and see what does it mean. Here's the punchline in case you tune out when we read Scripture. Some of you when we read Scripture are like, hmm. All right? Like this is, this is where I just get to skip to the end where he's going to start talking again and telling me what it says. So if you can't read with me Scripture, I'm just going to tell you the punchline. If we're not partnering with the Spirit, the Spirit of God in us will just continue to reside in us. He is still performing a lot of functions, a lot of roles, but probably one of them, he's just going to sit back at certain points and not actually activate all the things that could happen if we were in sync with the Spirit in us. I'm not making that up. Here's what the verses say. Here's from Ephesians, so we can look at the context of what this grieving the Spirit is. Paul is writing to the the churches in Asia Minor. He says, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Like There's an attitude we should take on of being righteous and holy. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, For we're all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who's who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work. Doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs that it may be beneficial for those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. 
What's the key here? All of these things that Paul cites grieve the Spirit. So the first thing we would notice is grieving the Spirit. The Spirit has to be a person, has to have a personality. You can't grieve an inanimate object or some sort of strength of the Lord. This is truly God that we're grieving. And this is just the list that comes out of it. Top of the list seems to be bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, malice, being unkind, being uncompassionate, failing to forgive. If you use the rest of the verses, you could even say lying, prolonged anger, stealing, not working hard enough, not providing for others who have needs because you're idle, deceitful desires. All of these things hurt the community. But most importantly, they grieve the spirit. Think about it. Grief is something that you suffer as a loss, a break of intimacy, a break of a relationship. God is saying that as I reside in you, when you act in these ways, you grieve me. And I feel that grief. The good thing here is, do you see this? The Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. There's nothing about this as the Holy Spirit leaves. There's nothing about this that talks about salvation in any way. This is just saying the Spirit is grieved. And some people would say, just kind of withdraws a moment. Not from you, just is not partnering with you at the moment because you've broken the very intimacy of God in you. Think of all the rituals we talked about in our, in our, in our Old Testament series. All the things you had to do just to encounter a holy God. And here we are with God in us. Many people say, if we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, how much more holy should our lives be? One of the books we're reading is from Tozer, who says pretty clearly, if you think that you can have lust in your heart and have any partnership with the Holy Spirit to empower your life, you don't know the Holy Spirit. If you have envy in your heart, or if you have any kind of other kinds of resentment, bitterness in your heart, and you think that you can continue to have some relationship with the Holy Spirit, you're breaking the relationship. So maybe the first thing we think of is grieving the Spirit might mean because we're only given this small line about it, that that break of intimacy with the Spirit causes us to disconnect from the power of the Spirit who resides in us. Daniel. Are you saying that you can't have any sin, you have to be, you have to be perfect before you can use the Holy Spirit? Uh, I don't believe that the Holy Spirit does no work and does not have any role because of our sin. I do believe that the people who exhibit a close relationship with the Spirit are in tune with Him from every person that I've read so far is saying that you need to be actively moving forward towards trying to live into that sanctification of purifying your life. I'm not saying that you have to be sin-free for the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's be clear. These sins grieve the Spirit. Other sins grieve the Spirit. What is the import of grieving the Spirit is open to more discussion. Right? I don't know that anybody has the, has the knowledge, but I do know that that's the warning that people take out of this, right? That that's what they're talking about. Catherine. Um, just based on what I was listening to and reading, a lot of this letter is, is being read, being given to a community of people. And these things that we're not supposed to do are relational. Um, so, regardless of the sins that you commit individually, um, I think that we have so many choices that we can make throughout our day um, to love one another. And, I mean, if you love God, you're going to love His people. And so, this whole spirit, quenching the spirit thing, and like, we have to be perfect, I, I, I would disagree. Like, we are imperfect people. Um, but the thing is, is that it's not all about us in this Holy Spirit business. I mean, I think the Holy Spirit can manifest with more people. Like, it's not just a, how can I meditate by myself alone in a closet and get enough Holy Spirit so that way I can live out my day extraordinarily. Okay, let me make sure I'm being heard right, because you guys are both talking about perfection, which I'm not even addressing. So let me just make sure we're, being, we're on the same page. The people who ask, why is the Holy Spirit's power not more manifest in the life of the believer than it is? So the then it is implies he's already doing the work of the Spirit. Whatever the Spirit wants to do, the Spirit will do. 
But people are asking the question, why is that power not more manifest in the church and in the individual life of the believer? And the answer that you're going to push back on, which is fine, it's good, because I'm not recommending this answer. I'm saying this is the answer that many, many people come to is because our lives continue to be lived the way we want, but that every time we break that relationship with God and with one another, you mentioned community, we are grieving the spirit. And this is the formulation that you have to think is whether you agree with it or not. And that causes us to disconnect from that very source of power that we could otherwise have. Mostly I was just like, it's very, it sounded really individualized. Right, especially look at these sins. Like why is lying so bad? It's not just an individual thing. It's because you're lying to one another. Why is being idle so bad? Is this Holy Spirit just not like laziness? No, he actually says, because if you do something useful with your hands, you'd be providing for other people. He's giving a reason, like, I don't care about you being idle just because you're a lazy person. I care about you being lazy because you could be providing for others, and you're not. And that grieves me, that you think it's okay for you just to sit around and do nothing, because it hurts others. Jolene. I just wanted to say something. Um, I was reading this, well, as you're reading, it says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, which whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. I just want to bring up the word sealed, which means, sealed means you're together not separating, he's in you. And, and um, I also wanted to go back to the whole like, perfection thing as you were saying, like I feel like a, like a way, I guess I could give an example of that would be like, um, if I'm making a choice to, to actively sin, like let's say I am um, you know, constantly committing adultery like on a daily basis or whatever, like in my life, this is my sin, this is what I hold on to, this is what I do. I'm, I'm, I'm removing myself, I'm disconnecting myself from the Holy Spirit, and I'm not allowing him to move in me and use me. I mean, as opposed to, yes, I sin on the daily, and I do things like here and there, you know, things here and there, but I am open and actively trying and working towards a right relationship with God. Therefore, the Spirit can and will move through me. And also, I, you know, I wanted to also point out where you said, you mentioned where Tromer gathered, I am there. God was speaking in terms of a dispute within the church, but he is always there. With, with individuals, individually God is there. You know, he, he can be there just with John on his own. He's there with me on my own and he moves. But yes, he is, you know, very much into community-based living and, and brotherhood and love. How many Christians have you heard pray, Lord, be with us? Like, if you understand the indwelling of the Spirit, he's always there. Right. Right? I mean, he's never, you don't have to invite him there. He's, he's actually there. Uh, there was a question over here. Comment? Yeah, Jonah. No, I'm just saying I like it. it. It just makes it look like it really is a, a lot of times a conscious decision, you know? Like, you choose to put off your old self, and you choose to make new in the attitude of your mind. It's like it said, you know, renew your mind and be, and, you know, the transformation that Paul talks about in another place. Yeah, so I agree with you guys. It's like the Holy Spirit's there, but he's neutral. So in sinning, it's not like you're disabling him because it's not like he was mm -hmm. doing all this stuff and you're like oh well, you know you're docking down the power level but by doing that you're not allowing him to be enabled you know so it's by sinning what could have happened has been kind of withheld not like the other way around you know so it's not like you start to be perfect so that you can attain salvation it's like by living in better community with him it's gonna come out more so it's like a disabling versus enabling kind of okay morgan yeah, I think I mostly agree with the idea of complying with the Holy Spirit or giving yourself to the Holy Spirit. And I also think, obviously, God's Spirit does move and do things with or without you. Mm -hmm. God struck down Saul in the middle mm -hmm. of him persecuting and killing Christians. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, clearly God will do what God desires. So, so I just think there has to be some tension. There. And although I, I do seem to think that the Spirit wants to move and will move with people who actually believe in him and in his ability to work. So, I mean, I think there's got to be some caution there, but I hope that makes sense. Let me put them together now, just to summarize, because this is very important and I don't want to be misheard again. This is not about salvation. That line is very clear. You're sealed. So, again, with the other verses we saw in Romans 8 and in Ephesians 1, we look here in Ephesians 4. This is not about salvation, and this is not about the Holy Spirit leaving. Once you're a believer, the Holy Spirit resides in you, period. 
And I'm also agreeing with Morgan and with others that we cannot tell the Holy Spirit what to do and what not to do. He is God. He does what he wants. He moves as he wants. However, it seems that God, the Holy Spirit, as he gives us some of these words through the words of the author, is at least giving a clue that there's at least some part, not the whole, but some part where the Holy Spirit is grieved by our action. And people believe that that is one of the reasons that we don't exhibit this great power of the Spirit because of that. I don't know the exact connection to it. I'm not going to say he goes into neutral like some of you said he doesn't. I agree with that. Because we cannot stop the Spirit from doing whatever the Spirit wants. But it's undeniable that this scripture is here for us to understand something. And it's also undeniable, as we said, as we look around the church, it seems that we're not anywhere near where most of us would see we would be. Okay. Another question that was asked was, can the Spirit be earned? Uh, can you, like, work for the Spirit? And I think this verse is instructive from Acts. This is the story of Simon who wanted to buy the Holy Spirit. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave them their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. Can you imagine that? If you look at this line right here, I said last week that if you are operating on your own power, whenever you do something amazing, people see you. As Francis Chan would say, if you do something really amazing that only God could have done, people will never say, wow, that's really great that you did that. You won't even have to redirect the compliment to God because people will just go, there's no way you could have done that without God. In this case, he's able to operate completely on his own and people see that. They give him the attention. They call him the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, so when that community followed Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. The power of the Spirit is evident in what Philip is doing. I mean, he's not just coming to preach something to him. These guys are amazed at what's going on. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. If any of you are paying attention to that last paragraph, you would think, wow, that's kind of curious. Uh, that's why some of you, like nine of you, asked about the second baptism of the Holy Spirit because that verse seems to say something. We'll come back to it. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered the money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you've said may happen to me. Perhaps he repents there at the end. I mean, Peter is clearly inviting him to repent of this wickedness of thinking you could buy the Holy Spirit or somehow maybe earn him. The Holy Spirit is given to believers. That's clear. He got the whole thing mixed up. But I think what's interesting about this story is it does go to our motives, doesn't it? What's his motive for having the Holy Spirit? Seems like he could make a good business out of it. He was pretty entrepreneurial. With his whole sorcery business going out of business now that everybody's believing in Jesus and getting the power of the Holy Spirit, maybe he could just change professions and start become a Holy Spirit hand layer guy. So he wants to buy that. His motivation is off. His understanding of the Spirit is off. The reason's off. So forget Simon for a moment. The only reason we would read this verse together is, is our motivation off? In addition to grieving the Spirit, could it be a question of motivation for us? I mean, some questions you might ask as you look is like, if you long for the Spirit, is it for our own purposes? 
Like, what is the reason you would really want to be filled with the Holy Spirit? I'm not presuming it's wrong, by the way. I'm just asking, what is the reason? You ask yourself. You don't have to tell me. Just, what is the reason I'd want the Spirit to be totally empowered in my life? Is it so that we could gain attention for you or a ministry? Is it for me? I know plenty of people who've actually said the words that we really just need to see the power of the Spirit, which is welcome. But we have to ask the question of what's the motive? Is it for something we want to see happen? Or is it truly because we're in partnership with the Spirit to see what He wants to happen? Which is it? Is it to just add some juice to our spiritual life? Like if I could levitate you, man, that would be some cool, cool ministry. <laughs> I mean, you know, that would just be awesome. Are you ready to let the Spirit completely take over your life? Which I would say more than one author who has experienced depth of intimacy with the Spirit says, the Spirit is not partial, meaning you don't get part of the Spirit. You know, we would say the Lord of all or none at all. Are we ready to actually say, I want the Spirit in every part of my life? Not, I'd like to reserve these pieces for me, but see the Holy Spirit working in those pieces over there. Are we willing to work towards setting aside every sin that hinders? I'm not saying we're going to do it. But doesn't the Scripture repeatedly say to us, be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect? Doesn't say, hey, I know you'll never be perfect, so don't try. The Scripture says, be holy, be whole, be complete, be perfect if you can be. Strive towards it. You can't do it on your own power. That's actually part of the role of the Holy Spirit. It's to sanctify you every day to bring you closer. But you at least need to be open to want that in your life as opposed to, I'm fine the way I am. I'm fine saved. I'm comfortable, as some of you have said. I'm okay. This is all good where I am. Don't intrude on the things I want. Don't touch those things. And I think the answer might be, okay. Are we ready to deal with inner attitudes like bitterness, envy, and lust. Do you notice that both the story of Simon and the story that our, our exhortation in Ephesians, the first one that's mentioned is bitterness? What does he say to Simon? He says, because I notice that you have bitterness and iniquity, sin, like deep levels of sin in you. So is bitterness something that stands in the way for us? Like, are we? I think a lot of us are more bitter than we would ever really acknowledge. And it takes something. Maybe it's all that disappointed expectation Maybe it's just people letting us down. Maybe it's frustration with where our life is going, but we harbor bitterness. And I think that stands in the way of us being unleashed because it breaks the community. You cannot be in this community of believers if we're bitter. Are we ready to live in actual intimacy with the Spirit who lives in you? To guard and protect you against harm from the relationship? I mean, if you're in relationship with God, wouldn't we want to protect that relationship? And not grieve God in that way? I mean, sometimes I think, is God so weak that we could grieve him? I don't think that's the right attitude. I think the right attitude is, God loves us so much that when we turn our backs on him, he's grieved. God loves us so much that even though he doesn't need anyone other than God's self, God is actually grieved when one person turns away. That's the extent of God's love. It's not weakness, it's love. It's not like, oh, I can grieve God. Like, how, how, how weak is this God I serve? It's more like, how loving is a God where he could have billions for him, but if one turns his back, he's grieved. That his love is so complete that he would love everyone and say, yes, I would chase the one even if the 99 are safe. I would go after the one. But we're the ones that have sometimes that ability to grieve God because we choose intentionally to turn our back or to engage in those things that break the intimacy with God in us. So, the last part is this verse from 1 Thessalonians 5. In the exhortation there, Paul says these words. He says, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. I want to tell you that this period after do not quench the spirit is one of those things that people have to make a call on. When we say what does it mean to quench the spirit, quenching is literally the idea that the spirit is a fire in you and you're dousing it with water. That's quenching. That's the image of quenching. Don't quench the spirit. It just stops there. What does that mean? 
probably the things we're talking about. But some people would say one of the ways you quench the spirit is read the next part, which probably had no punctuation between it. Don't quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them. How do we treat prophecies with contempt? I talked a couple weeks ago about the number of people that come up and say, you know, the Lord has told me something, and we go, yeah, right. I mean, we're tempted to do that all the time. It actually bugs us when people think they hear from the Lord like five times a day, right? Does it bug you? Is it because we lower our expectations again? I mean, it's true people over-ascribe things to God. I, there's no doubt. And we know people like that. But is it because we want a God that we can understand and explain and there's nothing supernatural about him, he would never speak to anybody? See our Hearing God series? Is that part of the reason it bugs us? That we would actually have contempt for anyone who thinks they've heard from the Lord when we know that the scripture tells us that it will happen? Again, it's just one of those questions that says, look at the condition of our heart. Maybe the reason we don't see these things is because we're too busy trying to deny them or trying to make sure that everybody doesn't expect them. That way, we're never embarrassed about what God does or doesn't do. And somehow our faith will remain intact you know, because there's nothing difficult about it. There's no moment where you're at the edge of your rope saying, I don't know anymore and I can't see anymore. I have to believe without those things, which is the exact definition of faith, by the way. So those are the reasons. And now here's the hope, <laughs> now that we've utterly depressed some of you. We have one more next week. So how am I filled then with the Spirit? If, I, if I've talked about grieving and quenching, which are explanations, so what's the opposite of that? How am I filled with the Spirit? What does my life have to look like so that I can actually engage this engine that's inside of me? that I can use that power and have access to it so I can see that my life is lived totally on different power and looks markedly different in some way. Okay? Let's pray. Lord God, in humility, I lay before you the fact that only you know what it is that you want to do and what it is that you are doing in every one of our lives. And I lay down in humility before you the fact that I can't speak in general terms for the ways that you move or don't move. I can only look at the words that you have inspired, Lord, and try to understand them and try to exhort others to see if we can collectively help one another to live in a way that does not grieve you, Lord. First and foremost, I think what you want is a deep and intimate relationship with us. So maybe the first step this week is to break us of the places where we're just sitting in comfort, sitting with low expectations, and bring us to a place where we're actually desperate for an intimate relationship with you. Whether it's because of our circumstances or just because we love you enough that we want to be in that relationship with you at all points. Lord, we need your help because that sounds like a tall order. So Spirit, do your work in us. Cause us to long for you and be desperate for you. Pray this in your name. Amen.